From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Best of the Best, the 2014 Third Coast Festival broadcast. What a story there is, the climax to all the hopes and ambitions of months of preparation. Today, we bring you the best audio documentaries of the year, winners of our Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. But before we share these amazing stories, just a little bit about who we are and what we do. Third Coast is an independent arts organization in Chicago dedicated to celebrating great radio stories. All year long, we scour the globe for the best work we can find and share them in a variety of ways. On the radio, the internet, at live listening events, we also host an international competition to honor all of the wonderful work our medium has to offer and the talented producers who create it. Movies have the Oscars and Sundance, music has the Grammys, but for documentary radio, there is really just one, and that pushes producers and reporters to do their best work, and that is the Third Coast International Audio Festival. That was Roman Mars of the podcast 99% Invisible, host of the 2014 Third Coast Awards Celebration. Each year, we ask the best and the brightest in public radio and beyond to take a little time out of their busy schedules to be our judges. And let me tell you, it is no easy task. This year, 420 entries poured into the competition from 11 different countries, including Italy, Singapore, and Australia. 12 won top honors. On this special broadcast, we bring you our competition's winning stories and behind-the-scenes tales from the producers of this remarkable work. So stay with us for the next hour of this year's Best of the Best. Our first documentary begins more than a decade ago. That was when reporter Laura Starczewski visited a mental hospital in Queens, New York, named Creedmoor, to report on their arts program. While there, she met a patient named Issa Ibrahim. Over the next nine years, Laura recorded Issa, slowly unearthing his story and following the thorny thread of his efforts to be released. The staff of Third Coast felt that this story was an extraordinary example of reporting a very complicated situation over many, many years in a beautiful, clear, affecting way, which is why we gave it a 2014 Director's Choice Award. Here's Laura Starczewski with The Hospital Always Wins. All right, so I go out there and just start interviewing patients at this arts program. So this is Laura Starczewski at the Living Museum. It's March 7th. It's called the Living Museum. And I'm recording for a possible broadcast. It's inside one of those old crumbling buildings. It's a chaotic place, two stories, lots of rooms, filled with decades' worth of Creedmoor patients' artwork. And what kind of artwork have you done? I would record anyone who wanted to talk uh, to me. I've done a lot of drawings, black and white abstract drawings. Most of the people I talked to were kind of hard for me to connect with. They were distant, or they seemed really broken down. But then I walked into this one room. On the wall, there was this huge oil painting, very detailed, very realistic, it was a parody of The Last Supper. It's Jesus eating chicken and watermelon. Along with Bob Marley, Albert Einstein, Richard Nixon, clutching a couple of reel-to-reel tapes. That's a, that's a very old Watergate joke that maybe some people wouldn't get. The artist was a patient named Issa Ibrahim. Issa didn't look like the other Creedmoor patients. He acted and dressed more like a downtown artist. 
Converse sneakers, tight black peg leg jeans, a cool t-shirt. <laughs> no, but uh... Isa showed me another one of his paintings. The room was full of them, called The First Kiss. That's oh, wow. for someone special in my life. He told me he had a girlfriend, Susan, a former patient he'd met in the hospital. They'd been together on and off for about 10 years. Every Sunday we spend together for like three, four hours. And we talk and we listen to music. I just introduced her to the yeah, yeah, yeahs. And she likes them. I stayed for a while talking to Isa that day. The next time I came back, I went looking for um, him. I just wanted to see how you've been doing. What, what have the last been couple great. of weeks been? been and the great. more we talked, the more sane he seemed. We read the same magazines. We talked about art. We recommended music to each other and books. I just got finished reading the funniest book I read in years. David Sedaris's Me Talk Pretty One Day. Hilarious book. Hilarious. You got to read it. I couldn't make sense of the situation. Issa didn't seem sick to me. And if he wasn't sick, why was he still at Creedmoor? I kept going back. Eventually, I asked Issa why he was in the hospital. Would you feel comfortable telling me that story of how you came here? Uh, off mic, maybe. It's a, it's a tough thing. Because it's, it's weird. Um, All I knew was that he had no contact with his family. He'd just turned 40, and he'd been at Creedmoor for more than a decade. He would always tell his girlfriend Susan to move on, to go live her life. Because even though he dreamed of being an artist out in the city, building a life with Susan... The truth was, he had no idea when he would actually get out of the hospital, if he would ever actually get out of the hospital. It's scary, because this is your life in their hands. You You don't want somebody to kind of wait for you, which is what it is. Indefinite waiting, and that's, that's hell. As time went by, I saw that my life was moving forward. And Issa's was stuck on the same 24-hour cycle that it had been for years and years. The art program during the day, the ward at night. I couldn't understand why Creedmoor wouldn't let him out. Then one day, Issa gave me a copy of a CD. His CD. Little did we know you then. Trophy for the older men. Tall and lean like the gazelle. can't go on, I must go on. Original songs by Isa Ibrahim. He'd somehow recorded an entire album in his room on the ward. And that's when I finally started to understand Isa's situation. Maybe he was still stuck at Creedmoor because he was his own worst enemy. He wrote a song using the first name of the female director of the hospital. Um, I think it was called Hot for Charlotte. That's Dr. Larry Siegel, a psychiatrist. He's assessed Issa a bunch of times over the years. Hot for Charlotte was about Charlotte Seltzer, the boss of the whole hospital. I guess in a way it's like writing a song if you're in junior high school about the principal. Well, just the title is enough to, to, get, to get you in trouble. That's Issa's buddy, Gio. Yeah, but come on. Gio is an obsessive documentarian, and he took the liberty of recording their phone conversations when Issa used to call Gio from the crackly payphone on the ward. And something you forgot, you hot for Charlotte. But but why did you name it that, uh, Hot for Charlotte? Because that was the title of the song. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, that's, that, that's how it plays out. I wanna meet her, I wanna be her. Won't you take me to your leader? Issa had seen Charlotte Seltzer around the hospital plenty of times. 
She was one of his captors, and apparently he wanted to make sure that she knew who he was too. He dropped the CD in the inner hospital mail and he sent it right to her. She may leave you there to rot. <laughs> yeah. You start censoring yourself at certain death. I didn't want to censor myself. And maybe I shouldn't have written it, or maybe I should have written it, but maybe I shouldn't have recorded it. Or maybe I should but then when you record it, you want people to hear it. So I recorded it, I want people to hear it, and I guess I wanted her to hear it for some unknown reason. That was thought to be an indication of of some grave problems with his judgment and his thinking and hostility. And when Charlotte Seltzer heard that CD, it meant one more bad note in Issa's chart, one more example of his problems with authority, and one more reason to keep him in the hospital. I knew Issa for six years before I found out the reason he was first sent to Creedmoor. His story starts when he was two years old, when his destiny in life was first revealed. He was meant to become a great artist. Issa grew up in a big family. He had two brothers and two sisters. They lived in a house way out in Queens. I came from a very bohemian, artsy, jazzy, beatnik, hippie household. So the house was full of artists, musicians, writers, the, the intelligentsia. Issa's dad, Jamil Ibrahim, was a jazz musician, a bass player who ran with the greats of the 50s and 60s. His mom, Audrey, was a model and a painter. The Ibrahim house was sort of a creative utopia, but it wasn't always peaceful. His parents fought sometimes. There were parties late into the night. I talked to two of Issa's siblings, his sister Karen and his older brother, Isak. It was always a full house, always a full house. Just so many things going on, drinking, smoking, and everything else. Issa was born in 1965. His name means Jesus in Arabic. Well, he was the baby of the bunch. You know, and he, I, I think he I think he was one of mom's favorites. All the good looks, all the talent, all the brains, all the everything. It's a had it. All Issa did was draw, 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 draw. Issa would be sitting down eating dinner. He drawing. He knew that's what he wanted to do. Yeah, that was his thing. Issa's earliest memories are of painting with his mom. I remember being two and three and four years old and her sitting me down at her feet while she's painting this gigantic painting of uh, Mao Zedong with a purple head or uh, a red Fidel Castro. She did these iconic uh, leaders. She did a gigantic Idi Amin. And she'd whisper to me while I'm drawing, doing my little doodles by her feet. She, you're going to be greatest. You're going to be the greatest ever. Issa's whole family was banking on his talent. They were sure he'd be a famous artist one day. But then when Issa was 22, his dad collapsed on stage. Within a year, he was dead of cancer. And Issa started smoking a ton of weed to cope with the grief. Isak had left home to serve in the Air Force by this point. But when he came home on leave, Issa seemed different. He started to think there was something wrong with him because, you know, okay, well, he's always in his room. You know, he'd creep out from time to time, and that was basically his sanctuary. Soon, Issa was afraid to eat certain foods. He said there was a plot to poison him. He didn't trust anyone. When family came by to visit, Issa shouted at them to leave. People stopped coming by the house for fear. 
you know, out of fear because they didn't know what was going on. Issa had holed himself up in his bedroom upstairs, the only one of the kids left living at home. At Christmas, I get the, I get the Christmas card. Isak was serving in Korea that winter when he got a letter from his mom. Christmas of 89. Dear son Isak, peace and blessings unto you. Uh, things here are very bad. No Christmas this year. Please, son, pray for us. Please write me immediately, no matter what. Love. Isak wasn't sure what the letter was about, but it worried him. And he was all the way across the world. He couldn't get home to figure out what was going on. And Isa himself knew something was wrong. Back in Queens, he felt like everyone had turned against him. He tried talking to his mom, but he didn't really have the words to explain what was happening. I said, Ma, I think I'm losing my mind. And she said, please don't let it be mental. Don't say it's mental. Let me rub some healing oil on your head. She made me right, right, right lay down on the couch, put my head in her lap, and rub the healing oil in my head. One night, in February 1990, Isa was getting on the subway, and he looked around at all the other people on the platform to find that they were all looking back at him. Everyone I felt was looking at me as if to say, let's talk. Let's talk. Communicate. It's happening tonight. Isa was terrified. He rode the train for hours. When he finally got back to Queens around 1 o'clock in the morning, the only one home was his mom. And I heard voices for the first time. Just, it was almost like having a radio on and someone whizzing the dial. That's exactly what it felt like, exactly what it sounded like in my head. But the things they were saying were about me, you know. You're going to die in two days. Uh, they found a food kill for AIDS. You can have sex all you want. Someone told the Antichrist, and you got to kill him. Issa heard a voice tell him he was Jesus. He turned on the TV and started flipping the channels. He saw messages from NASA, from Magic Johnson, about mass killings and the second coming. The people on the TV were talking directly to him, and he was talking back. And my mom said, sound like you're having a party up there. People talking to me. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, Mom, am I Jesus? And she paused for a moment, and this is what will confound me perhaps for the rest of my life, and she said, yes. And uh, <clears throat> I, uh, I thought I saw in her face something evil. And I'm looking at her, and I see her face shifting as if a paved road in the, in the summertime. You know, I'm, I'm seeing what I believe to be evil underneath my mother's face. And then, Issa says, he attacked her. That was an excerpt of The Hospital Always Wins, produced by Laura Starcheski with sound design by Brendan Baker for State of the Reunion. The story was one of two 2014 Third Coast Director's Choice Awards. It also won an Edward R. Murrow Award. Laura is now reporting on mental health for NPR. You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2014 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxi. 
The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago. Our work is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Today, we're listening to winners of our annual documentary competition. But you can also hear great radio from around the world anytime on our Third Coast podcast. Just visit iTunes or thirdcoastfestival.org to subscribe. Coming up, a story about a guy who well, let's just say, is interested in a romantic liaison. Nothing new about that. But this guy is far from your typical pickup artist. But first, a man living on the street finds it hard to come in from the cold. Stay with us. Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX. I'm Gwen Maxi. Our next story revolves around a man named Arthur Langill, who spent most of his adult life living on the streets of Vancouver. Recently, with the help of the Canadian government, Arthur moved into an apartment, which you might think would bring him a sense of relief. But this transition from outside to inside proved to be a lot more difficult than Arthur expected. About the 2014 Third Coast Honorable Mention Award winner, the judges said, Today's fashion for tight and efficient storytelling doesn't leave much room for the messy uncertainties of the lives we actually lead. But Arthur's story is different, a slow-blossoming piece that invites us to get to know its central character in the round, a respectful, intensely human portrait of a complicated man. CBC producer Suzanne Ahern tells Arthur's story. My bike? Describe your bike. It's a Gary Fisher. He's an American. He made the Gary Fisher bike called the Gitigumi. I seldomly get flat tires, but I do have a bicycle kit with a pump. I'm self-sufficient. This thing is self-sufficient. I'm so proud of my trailer. This thing can carry two men. You can go to a garbage can, you can find your food, you can go on the lane, you can find some money, buy nickels and dimes, bring it to the depot, carry your sleeping gear on it. I take my plastic bag and fill it up with plastics and cans and glass. Then I have to move my radio once in a while because my buggy's getting too full. CBC on. Did you sing in a choir as a kid? Yes. It was the Catholic Boys Choir. Dana Glover stuff. See? See? That's how many people I know. I know everyone out here. I've been here for 12 years. We're the, uh, the ultimate comedy club for the homeless. When we get going, we don't even have to be drunk. 
Hey, Danny, bye, bye. Oh, no, no hugging, no hugging. No, no, it makes us look stupid being homeless. <laughs> We've got to go make some money. Do you want to come outside the depot with us? Is that where you're going now? Yeah. In his 12 years on the street, Arthur's only income has been from what's called binning, hunting through garbage for bottles and cans. It helps that in British Columbia, almost every beverage container is worth something, at least five cents. One large and three small glasses. Nickels and dimes add up. Two, four, six, seven. On a good day, Arthur can cash out with 20 or 30 dollars. Other days, with just enough for a loaf of bread. Thank you so much, sir. Or a few cans of beer. That's wonderful of you. Thank you so much. Or a pack of cigarettes. Once he moves inside, Arthur won't leave his old life behind entirely. During the day, he'll still be out biking around, binning for bottles and cans. But at night, he'll mostly sleep indoors. A few weeks after he signed the tenancy forms, Arthur got the keys to his brand new bachelor apartment. And for the first time in 12 years, he had a door he could lock. Arthur wanted to capture for himself as much as he could of this huge change in his life. Test, test. So I set him up with a machine and a microphone and helped him get started. Testing. Now look, see, I can hear myself. If it's flashing, oh, it's recording. Yeah, it flashes as there's sound. Hey, I'm a DJ. Pretty soon, Arthur headed off downstairs to do some test recordings. Hi guys. Hey, what's up, Arthur? Alright. Oh, we're having lunch, are we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just doing the transition from moving inside from living outside for so many years. And this is CBC tape. Nobody has to feel nervous. There's nobody's going to get in trouble. All right. So are you telling us that you're recording this? Right now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was an excerpt from Arthur's Story, produced by Suzanne Ahern and Steve Wadhams, with storyteller Arthur Langell for the CBC. You can hear the full documentary at thirdcoastfestival.org. Arthur is still living in his new apartment, making birdhouses from found and reclaimed wood. He also carves walking sticks. Sometimes he sells them, sometimes he gives them away. He also just got his first tape recorder in order to make more radio stories. This year, the 2014 Third Coast Silver Award went to a story that our judges said could only exist in radio. They went on to say, Jesse Cox and Timothy Nicastri introduce us to a remarkable character in an unremarkable predicament. Dude wants to get laid.
The producers give us a close-up look at Tom's quest for intimacy and take us on a surprising, moving, funny, and deeply clever journey that not only asks us to reconsider our views of people with disabilities, but uses the tools of the medium to force us to do so. Here is the real Tom Banks. Do you want me to show you my profile? Hopeless romantic, smiley face. Hey guys, I'm Thomas. I wear my heart on my sleeve. But I love the phone. Unique, different, genuine. This guy's cute. Hi, I'm Brian. Brown hair, brown eyes, tanned. I love the beach, but when I'm not surfing, I like to chill out at home in front of a good movie. The app's called Grinder, and it's really changed the way you meet guys. It uses GPS. You log in, and it knows where you are, and also where other guys who use it are. So if you're at a bar, or just walking down the street, it shows you who else is around so you can message them. It's like a gay beat anywhere, anytime. If it's for sex, we normally ask each other if we're, you know, um, up for it, and then exchange photos. But, oh, grinder men are really fussy about that. Not so much me, but most men demand to see photos, like rude photos, before they even meet you. It's a bit gross, if I'm being honest. He's cute. Let's see if he's online. The first time I used Grindr, there was a sea of perfect men, and they all had beautiful, muscular bodies. There was something exciting about the idea of hooking up with a stranger. I was away for work. The first couple of guys I messaged didn't reply, but then this one guy sent me a message. He was really cute. He had short brown hair, dark eyes, which I liked. Oh, he wore, wore glasses, and you could see he had really big muscles. But he looked gentle, too. He had a cheeky smile, and his profile said, City boy looking for a genuine guy. We agreed to meet in the hotel bar where I was staying. I was really nervous. I ordered a glass of Coke, and I, I sat there and waited. I saw him come through the sliding doors. I smiled and waved crazily at him, and he stopped for a moment. But he didn't move. He didn't smile. He just, he just, but he stood there with like a look of disappointment in his eyes. Then he started to walk outside. So I raced after him, but when I got to the street, he was gone. I probably should have told him I had a disability. Hello, welcome to Skype call testing service. After the beep, please record a message. Afterwards, your message will be played back to you. I am, I'm coming back. I'm Tom Banks. I am Tom Banks. Hi, I'm Thomas Banks. 
If you are able to hear your own voice, then you have configured Skype correctly. Thank you for using the testing service. Goodbye. On the internet, no one judges me. Which is why I've always talked to people on the internet ever since I was four, 14. Because there is no judgment. Because no one knows about my disability. When I'm online, I don't tell the guys I chat with that I have cerebral palsy. Some people can be superficial, so if I told them, they wouldn't get to know me before they judge me. I started looking for a boyfriend when I was 16 years old. I sat in the Geelong library for hours, trawling internet dating sites looking for a guy to spend the rest of my life with. I thought it would be the easiest way to find a boyfriend, but I discovered pretty quickly it wasn't a great way to meet people. I didn't have many friends when I was 16. I had friends when I was at school, but they never invited me out on the weekends to hang out with them. I live 50 minutes out of Geelong on a farm, so it was really hard for me to have much of a social life away from school. I was never invited to any of the teenage parties because no one wanted a cripple there. So I turned to the internet to take some of the loneliness away. I spoke with lots of guys in chat rooms. I don't remember if I told them I had a disability. But I could be whoever I wanted. Hi, I'm Tom. 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 What are you doing? That was an excerpt from The Real Tom Banks, produced by Jesse Cox with sound engineer Timothy Nicastri for Radiotonic and RN's creative audio unit from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Jesse spoke to us and told us about how he met Tom Banks. I met Tom as part of a development of an arts festival in Melbourne in Australia, and very quickly he actually opened up to me. I didn't have to do that much to actually um, probe at all. He's an incredibly forthcoming person. He's, uh, I think, got very good at communicating and he's very kind of passionate about sharing his story. And the more I got to know him, the more I realised beneath that story was some really interesting um, parts of his life and interesting ideas that I wanted to dig further into. Uh, so we'd interview each other face to face and then we'd also uh, do interviews over Skype and with the light writer over email, kind of trying to find all the different ways that he communicates and the different ways to get different kinds of responses out of him. So, you know, when I was face to face, it was much harder to understand, but I could probe more and get more honest responses. But then at the same time, sometimes it was really useful doing interviews over Skype and over messenger and over email, which allowed him to um, articulate more ideas in his head. And then using those two different ways of interviewing, I was able to kind of bring together his story. The more I hung out with him around the arts festival, the more I realised he had a lot of different personas, so to speak, in terms of how he would communicate with us, how he would represent himself online, 
And so I became really interested in this idea of kind of truth and fiction and those lines between what was real and what wasn't real and how we all perceive ourselves. And to me, there started to be some really clear versions of Tom. There was Tom, the guy full of bravado who was on Grindr, not telling anyone about his disability. And then there was kind of the much more intimate Tom, which he got face to face. Um, So I think talking to Tom really opened my eyes about, you know, here's this man who who does have a disability, but he just goes into the world full pelt. And the more you get to know him, you realise that he's also sometimes totally playing you. Like he's there and, you know, oh, can you carry my bag? Can you get me a bit of water? And everyone is just kind of running around getting all these things for him. And then when he decides he wants to go off to the sauna or go clubbing, he just like will get up, grab his bag and just confidently leave the room, walk across the street and into the world. Jesse Cox, winner of the 2014 Third Coast Silver Award. Jesse's also the winner of last year's Third Coast Director's Choice Award for his story, Keep Them Guessing. To hear that story and all of this year's winners, just visit thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2014 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxi. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago. Today, we're listening to winners of our annual Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. Coming up, the 2014 Third Coast Gold Award winner. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX. I'm Gwen Maxi. And now we want to tell you about the winner of our top honor, the 2014 Third Coast Gold Award. On NPR in 1998, Radio Diaries first told the story of Melissa Rodriguez, a 19-year-old woman who grew up in foster care and had just given birth to her first son, Isaiah. Sixteen years later, producers Joe Richman and Sarah Kate Kramer revisited Melissa to see how she was doing as an adult holding down a job and raising two sons. Our judges said that this story was told with nuance, subtlety, detail, and grace. Here's the 2014 Third Coast Festival Gold Award winner, Teenage Diaries Revisited, Melissa's Story. Today is October the 9th, and I have a brand new baby boy, seven pounds. His name is Isaiah Seto, and we would have recorded the birth, but it happened so fast. About half an hour. <laughs> you know, so I'm sorry you couldn't hear all the pain, but it was easy. <laughs> Just listening to it again, it's like, wow, that's me. <laughs> You know, when I was 18, I just thought you gave birth to a cute little kid and he was just going to be healthy and smiling all the time and cheery-eyed and all that good stuff. That's how you think when you're young. You never think about what could possibly happen. Zaya! Okay. Testing. Okay, we're good. Let's do this. My name is Melissa Rodriguez. This is my apartment. Good morning, Tai Tai. Oh, toys everywhere. I have two boys, 
So this is Tyron. He's six years old. Say hi. Hi. Testing. Testing. Don't do that. Okay. What's up with Zaya? What he up to? Zaya's my oldest. He's 16. Zaya! What? Smells like boy in here. What's that? Play video game. Yeah, what kind of video game is that? A shooting game. That's crazy. Shooting game. Are you old enough to play this game? <laughs> Mom, you sound like a mother. I guess I am, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I've actually always been fine with being alone with my two boys. We kind of like lean on each other. What time is it now? Eight? Okay. You ready for school? Let me know if you need help. I had a pretty tough life growing up. My mom abandoned me when I was about two. Me and my brother. We weren't even little kids. We were babies. And, well, let's see. I ended up in a foster home. Then when I was eight, I went to another foster home. Then when I was nine, I went to another foster home. Then a group home. So I was bounced from one place to another. So finally, at 15, um, I literally ran away. And um, when I had my child, I was determined to make it somehow, you know, to at least be a decent mother. I mean, my God, my mother gave me two years of herself. Two years. I have sneakers older than that. So I work for Cablevision. What I do there is CSR, is customer service representative. It's a call center. We have 532 reps. It's a lot of people. I work night shifts from 3 to 12. Those hours were the only hours available. So when I come in, you have five minutes to read your emails, you have five minutes to get water, whatever you have to do. Signing on, reception 3298. No talking. 305, you log in, and those calls, we basically say to each other, we see you in eight hours because you're on the phone constantly. Constantly, constantly, constantly. Thank you for calling. My name is Melissa. How may I assist you today? Oh, sure, I can definitely assist you with that. So let's see, can you put your TV on channel three for me? Your TV, not the box. I literally take about maybe 150 phone calls in an eight hour shift. And they want us to stay on the phone no longer than four minutes per person. I understand. Okay, I understand ma'am. Okay, what does your screen look like? Is it blue, is it black, purple? I'm sorry, I can't hear you ma'am. Most people call in upset but sometimes you have to be understanding. How would you feel if your services sucked? Is there anything else that I can assist you with today? I do thank you for calling Optimum. You have a great day. Please hold for a short survey. Love it. I love it. I'm fixing problems. People are happy when they hang up with me. That's my calling, customer service. You deal with the complaints. You fix the problem. Hear complaints. You fix the problem. You know, all day long, all day long. Isaiah, can you hear me? Yeah. All right. Um, my kids get out of school at 3.30. 
So I check up at like six o'clock, I call. What's up? All right. He doesn't want it? So he didn't want the, the food, so just give him some Chef ID. You know how to do that, right? Anything else wrong? Because I just came outside to call you real quick. I got to go back inside. Yeah. All right, tax me if anything. Okay. All right. When Zaya was a baby, I worked at McDonald's. I worked at a at Friendly's, being an ice cream maker, <laughs> and I've even stripped. I was an exotic dancer, and I was willing to get on stage and strip for my son's money. I had no shame in that. Exotic dancing was actually extremely fun for me. It was acting being someone completely different and no one cared, you know, where I came from, what's my real name. It was just a fantasy. I bought myself a car, kept an apartment. I went to college and when I was done with exotic dancing, that's when I first really had a real nine to five that I could keep. And it's been like that ever since. By the time I come home, it's midnight, and um, everybody's asleep. Tight, tight room. The TV is blast and the light is on. That's how this child sleeps. It's really scary. Okay, looks like everybody's in bed. I can rest in peace now. Let me put on some good music here. Let's see. So, there is a subject that I haven't really spoken about yet. Um, after Isaiah was born, um, the first few months, everything seemed normal. And then I started noticing that everything that he would learn, he would backtrack. Like, he would learn how to walk and then he would out of nowhere start crawling again i think that was the first time i said is this normal then finally one day i came in and um his doctor she broke the news to me and said he has what we call cerebellum ataxia and that basically means the brain <clears throat> is unable to communicate with the body i was told that he was going to live maybe three to four years from the time he was diagnosed. That was it. So, enjoy your life with him while he's here, you know. Um, I think I just lost my cool when she told me that. I was just, I was upset. I was upset with myself. I was upset with the world. I was upset with God, you know, I, I just felt like, you know, I was born with so much bad luck. And um, I just thought that, you know, this, this was going to be different. You know, you're going to have a child and I may not have been loved the way that I was supposed to be loved, but at least I can love someone else, you know? I used to think if he was to pass away on me, what do I do? 
Who do I call? I guess 911. You know, I was not sure. As he started getting a little older, I was pushing for him to get better, you know. You know, you got to try. You got to walk. You got to do this. You got to do that. You have to do it. Because I, I wanted him to be like me, you know, strong. Funny thing, you know. Here he is at 16. I look at him and I say, This got to be my child. What other child would beat the odds? The doctors don't understand. But I don't have to understand. I think I'm done. <laughs> I'm signing off. Definitely signing off. So I'm here in um, Zaya's school, and today's my day off work. Um, I wanted to talk to the teacher, see how he's doing. Just waiting at the guidance counselor's office. Yes. Hello. 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 All right. How's he doing? He's doing much better. Much better. Isaiah is in a special class for kids that need um, extra help. I was just a little worried from last, you know, episode. Yeah. His body is, is fine now. There's no problem with his body. He doesn't have a problem walking. He doesn't have a problem playing sports. You know, everything's normal. But his IQ is a 79, so. It's like borderline, and um, his brain is unable to retain a lot of information. You know, he can remember that game, but when he goes to school, he can't remember that book they read yesterday. So it's the learning part of it is, is the only thing that's left for him to conquer. Hello. Hey, Zay. How was your day? Good. <sighs> Way to go home. Did you learn anything? Yeah, I learned a couple stuff. You learned a couple stuff? So, Zaya, anything you need to tell me? No? Isaiah got into some trouble today. The teacher told me that he was teasing. Teasing a kid who also has a disability. Zaya, when you go back to school tomorrow, can you think you can say I'm sorry to the boy? And don't do it again? I won't do it again, but I'm not saying sorry. Does he make fun of you? No. Everybody makes fun of everybody. But listen, we're not, you don't have to be like everybody else. You are Isaiah. You are not everybody else. We're not perfect. Okay? We both got issues. Right? So can you promise me to stop making fun of kids? Can you? Yes. All right. No, I don't like to use his disability as an excuse. I feel like it's just something to overcome. I remember when Isaiah was little, you know, it was so hard to watch him not able to talk or not even able to walk without falling or tripping over his own feet. <laughs> so I bought him a bike with training wheels on it. 
And I made him ride that bike every day. I remember he used to put his feet on the ground and push the bike because he couldn't pedal. And that's how he started. He would scrape up his legs right up. And I knew he wanted to ride so bad. I used that to help him get the motor skills right. Train his brain. And listen, this is what you're supposed to be doing. I put straps on so he could put his foot in. <laughs> I was make him go get that mail. Go get that mail, Zaya. It's your turn to go get that mail. And that mailbox was far. And he would push that bike. He would push that bike. And then one day, he put his foot on that second one, and he was pedaling it away. And I was like, wow. After that, it was no coming back. Hey. We're chilling. We're just talking. <laughs> so, let's see. When you were still in my belly, I recorded how my life was and how you were made. And, you know, I was very young, only three years older than you. Yeah. So now I'm going to actually play you the CD that I made. And it was all about you and me. That's you. As a baby. Today is October the 9th. Your birthday. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a brand new baby boy, seven pounds. His name is Isaiah Seto. <laughs> and he was born at 1.30, right? 1.30, right? I can't believe this whole thing was inside of me. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny to you? <laughs> yes. Um, it was hard. It was hard. You were an extreme change in my life. A lot of people didn't want me to have you. People tried to talk me out of it. Said that I wasn't going to be a good mother. And I said I was going to love my baby no matter what. Love him more than anybody ever loved me. You understand that? Yes. <laughs> kind of mushy. <laughs> what else? How your life be different if you didn't have me? Well, if I didn't have you, um, I could say I was lonely before you was born. And you was born, it was almost like I wasn't lonely anymore. So no matter how bad things got, I knew I always had you. You know, I felt bad about your father. I felt like it was my fault that I chose the wrong person to be your father. You know, I tried to replace him with other men to be your father. <laughs> eh. But I knew at the end you were just mine, and I was fine with that. I was just hoping that you would be fine with that. Are you fine with that? Yeah. Okay. What's that noise from? It's like when you play the game. They say dun 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 dun. Goodbye. Dun 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 dun. Game over. <laughs> Love that grin. <laughs> Let me stop it. Yes. I was made to love me. I was made to
so here I am 34 years old you know I've been a mom half of my life if I can do it over again I would want to be a kid longer yeah definitely I remember when I was 10 one of the homes I was in they used to send us to the summer camp Camp Squanto I just remember the orange Indian t-shirt I used to wear on the top of my bathing suit and um just want to make sure you were a good swimmer and for the test we had to tread water you just treaded water until you just couldn't tread water no more and I remember it was about 12 of us you see one by one you see one person tread for five minutes next person 10 minutes 20 minutes and I think at 35 minutes the last three people were there and they were struggling and this boy was looking at me like, this girl's still treading. And he gave up. I treaded for almost an hour and a half that day. And I would have kept treading, but they told me to stop. That was probably one of the happiest days of my life. I never thought about it before, but my whole life is treading water. You know? You have no support under your feet. You have no support over your head. You can't hold on to nothing. You're just out there. Keep it moving. That was Teenage Diaries Revisited, Melissa's story, winner of the 2014 Third Coast Gold Award. Melissa joined us at our award ceremony in Chicago. My son was not supposed to live and he's healthy right now. He's a normal kid doing schoolwork, wanting to be a graphic designer. And I'm a very proud mother. Thank you, Joel. Thank you. But thank you for listening. And maybe in 15 years, who knows, Isaiah might have his own diary. Talk about me. <laughs> Teenage Diaries Revisited, Melissa's Story, was produced by Joe Richmond and Sarah Kate Kramer for Radio Diaries and NPR. Joe's the winner of many radio awards, including the Peabody and a total of six Third Coast Awards, making him the winningest Third Coast recipient. What I love best about the radio is that for the price of a battery, you get unconditional love. Because when you listen to these amazing stories, so carefully crafted and artfully put together, you can't help but fall a little bit in love with all of the extraordinary people you meet and get to know. You don't have to see them. You can hear all of who they are in the sound, tone, and timbre of their voice, the lilt of the way they express themselves, and the character that bleeds through the words they choose. They stay in your head. You tell other people about them, and pretty soon you are that person, that wonderfully, slightly annoying person for whom there is no subject that does not remind you of a story you heard on the radio. And that, my friends, is an excellent state to be in. 
we are only too happy to take you there. I'm Gwen Maxi. Thanks for joining us. One note before the credits roll. We couldn't possibly squeeze all of the Third Coast winners into this hour, but they are available on our website for you to listen to and cherish whenever you'd like. Just visit thirdcoastfestival.org. That brings us to the end of this hour of Best of the Best, the 2014 Third Coast Festival broadcast. The program was produced by Dennis Funk with assistance from Annie Kostakis and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. The executive director of the Third Coast Festival is Johanna Zorn. The managing director is Sarah Geis. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago.